Hey little buddies, it's Uncle Rick from the Uncle Rick Audiobook Club. Two great audiobooks for kids every month for only $10. And today I am reading to you from The Boy's Book of Famous Soldiers, one of the great books you can download and listen to on Uncle Rick's Audiobook Club. For this particular broadcast, we have chosen the chapter on Dwight D. Eisenhower. They called him the Beloved General. One day in an upstairs room of a house in Abilene, Kansas, a 13-year-old boy lay on a narrow white bed, making the hardest decision of his young life. The doctor had said his leg would have to go. There was nothing else that could save him. If the badly infected leg were removed, there was a chance that he would pull through. Otherwise, there was no otherwise. The boy lay white-lipped and heavy-eyed against the pillows. His face showed the strain and agony of the past few days. Now, the terrible decision must be made. Should he let the doctors go ahead with the operation? Strange, perhaps, that a 13-year-old boy was ready to take the responsibility for such a decision. But this youngster had been used to making up his own mind for a long time. He tossed feverishly through the pain-filled hours of the night as the thoughts twisted through his mind. It was his leg. It was his life. In the long, dark hours of that night, the boy prayed quietly for strength and guidance. Then he made his decision, and he made it in faith and hope. Yes, it was a big chance, a risky gamble, but he was going to take it. He called in his older brother, Edgar. Promise me, he gasped above the pain that was now blotting up his strength. Promise me that you won't let him operate. Don't let him come into this room. you got to promise me. All that day, the older brother, who was about 15, sat guard in the sick room. All night, he lay in front of the door like a faithful watchdog. By the second morning, the poisonous swelling in the patient's leg began to go down. The crisis was over. The boy would get better without the operation. One night, more than 40 years later, a tall man walked along a country road in England, making the hardest decision of his life. He looked up at the small frosty stars overhead as if to ask them for advice. Again, he had to take a great chance, just as he had gambled with fate to save his leg back in Kansas years ago. But tonight, more than just his own life hung in the balance, tonight the fate of the whole world actually depended upon his judgment. He had many advisors to help him through this moment. He had the best of statesmen, scientists, and generals at his side. But the final decision rested with him alone. So again, he prayed quietly for strength and guidance, as he had prayed so long ago in the little bedroom in Abilene. Then as he walked along the dark, starlit road, the answer came to him. Now he knew what he had to do. Again, he felt a glow of faith and hope within him. He was ready to take the chance. As he walked swiftly back, the stars seemed to shine more brightly than before. A solemn group of men, some in uniform, some in civilian clothes, stood waiting for him at a country house. Gentlemen, he said, I think that we're ready to go ahead. May God be with us. With these words, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces of World War II, launched the invasion of Hitler's Europe, the greatest single military action the world has ever known.
What was the road that took the stricken boy from the little house in a Kansas town into the headlines of history? It was a hard road with many twists, sharp corners, and rocky edges. It was a long road, and it became a lonely one the longer he traveled it. Again and again on his way, Dwight Eisenhower was faced with problems that would have crushed most men. But he always found special strength in the faith and hope of his heart and the courage and independence of his mind. He was born in Denison, Texas on October 14, 1890. But Abilene is the town of his boyhood. From his earliest days there, he seems to have breathed in some of the rugged frontier spirit, along with its fresh country air. The Eisenhowers moved from Texas to Kansas when Dwight was two years old. He and his five brothers learned early to work hard together and to stand by each other always. Each boy learned to work for himself, but the brothers all helped each other in every way they could. They were not perfect, but they were known throughout the town for being as honorable, lovable, and loyal as a group of boys could be. If you ever tried to decide what one single gift has made Dwight Eisenhower into the world-famous leader that he is today, hmm, today he was still living then, huh? Okay. This book was published in 1951, one year before I was born. Yes, indeed, he was living then. The leader that he is today. You would probably say that it is his real genius for getting along with all sorts of people, getting them to do what has to be done in such a way that they like doing it. Much of this talent certainly goes back to his early family life and training. Had to scratch an ant off my arm. He was biting me. His early life and training. Much of his courage, faith, and simplicity also comes from this early family influence. Those rollicking, noisy boys must have been a handful for any parents to manage. But Mr. and Mrs. Eisenhower did well. Once, when they were all grown up, one of the boys asked his tiny mother, How did you ever manage to bring us all up and keep us out of jail? The little woman's eyes twinkled in an answer. Haven't you caught on yet? I kept all of you very busy all the time. Children usually turn out well, you know, when they have plenty to do. But this doesn't mean that the boys were tied down all the time to dull, hard work. Not at all. The Eisenhowers believed that healthy play was just as important as healthy work. During vacations or after school was out, you could always find at least two Eisenhowers in the middle of anything exciting that might be going on in town. It was not long before Dwight was known as the family scrapper, who was ready to do the fighting for his brothers at any time. Dwight, or Ike as he was nicknamed, was an all-round athlete. In his senior year of high school, he was elected president of the School Athletic Association. He also ranked high in scholarship when was starting even then to win all-round popularity. The famous Eisenhower grin and the charming friendliness that have won people from Africa to Iceland were already in evidence. When I finished high school, he was not sure what he wanted to do. He decided to work a while and help send his older brother Edgar through the University of Michigan. Edgar, you remember, was the brother who watched so faithfully overwrite during the time of his leg infection. For a few years then, Ike worked all around the seasons, as they called it in farming country. He picked apples, helped with the harvesting, and even rode as a cowboy for a time. He played a little professional baseball. He thought seriously about entering the University of Kansas. 
And then one day he ran into an old friend of his who had just been appointed to take entrance examinations for the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis. This interested Ike. He had begun to read a great deal of history, particularly military history, and the idea of going to Annapolis sounded exciting to him. At this time, he was working as night superintendent at a creamery, so he went back to high school in the mornings to review his chemistry and mathematics. In between, he and his friends studied together for the examinations. It happened that he took the examinations for West Point, as well as those for Annapolis. Now, West Point is the college that trains you to be an Army officer. Annapolis is the college that trains you to be a Navy officer. So they're two different schools. He really didn't think he could win. He knew he was competing against boys with fine educations, boys from all over the state of Kansas. But at least, he thought, this will be a chance to see the city and maybe to have a good time. The results of the examinations at Topeka showed that Dwight Eisenhower scored highest on the Annapolis test and second highest for West Point. And how wise he had been to try out for both schools. Just after he had been accepted by the Naval Academy, he discovered that he was two months past the age limit. Knock a couple of years off your age, a friend advised him. Who will know the difference? But Dwight was no liar, and he was certainly no fool. Much as it now meant to him to enroll in a service school, he would not do it dishonestly. So he was right back where he started from. Too old for Annapolis, and one boy had outranked him on the tryouts for West Point. And then something happened, the same thing that had given another boy a second chance at West Point nearly 70 years before, Stonewall Jackson, the great Christian Confederate general. Dwight Eisenhower was given another chance, too. The boy who had outranked him on the tests had failed his physical examination. In June 1911, Dwight Eisenhower took the train from Abilene, Kansas, to the United States Military Academy at West Point, a journey that was interesting and exciting to him with every chug of the wheels. From his window, he studied the passing countryside. He learned the names of all the towns he passed through. He felt happy and self-confident. How would the big blonde Kansan have felt if he had realized that this was really a train ride into destiny, into a future far greater than any he had ever dreamed for himself? The life of a West Point plebe or first-year man is never easy. But because Dwight Eisenhower was in excellent physical condition, because he had grown up in a large, warm-hearted family, because he knew how to get along with people, because he was honest, friendly, and good-natured, and because he had a sense of humor and was never afraid to laugh at himself. It was probably easier for him than many of his classmates. He frankly enjoyed it. So far as the hazing went, well, with five brothers at home, he himself was quite a master of the art of ribbing, and there's not much that these upperclassmen could teach him. One West Point story tells of the time Ike, a plebe, was ordered by upperclassmen to be at a certain place after taps wearing his full dress coat. Sure enough, at the appointed time and place, there stood Ike at attention, formal and stiff in his full-dress coat, and no trousers. "'What's the meaning of this?' shouted one of the upperclassmen, pointing at Ike's long bare legs. "'You didn't mention anything about wearing trousers, sir,' Cadet Eisenhower replied gently. He made many friends at West Point, 
including a lanky Missourian in his own company named Omar Bradley, who was destined to become the second most famous graduate of the class of 1915. Dwight Eisenhower graduated and was commissioned a second lieutenant of infantry. His first assignment sent him to Fort Sam Houston at San Antonio, Texas, where he met and married a month later Mamie Dowd. Soon after his marriage, he became a first lieutenant on his wedding day, Ike was placed on military police duty in San Antonio and on border duty in nearby towns. You know, I went uh, in the military to San Antonio, too. That's where Lackland Air Force Base is. And that's where I trained to be a security policeman and a security police patrol dog handler. I've been in San Antonio a number of times. The following spring, when the United States entered World War I, Ike expected to be sent overseas. His superior officers, however, discovered that this big Midwesterner had a real gift for training men. Ike spent the war, therefore, training officer candidates at Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, and teaching at the Army service schools and at other camps. With the end of World War I, there began for Captain Dwight Eisenhower a long series of Army experiences at different posts and camps. These assignments ranged from duty as an executive officer in the Canal Zone to writing Army guidebooks for tourists for the American Battle Monuments Commission. One of these guidebooks attracted the attention of General Pershing, the great American leader in World War I, who wrote a special letter complimenting Eisenhower on his writing. Many of the jobs were dull and uninteresting to the active Ike. Many of them seemed buried in unimportant detail. Few of them seemed to be giving him any special training for a real future in the Army. But Ike and here is another trait of his that has helped to make him great, knew that there was something valuable in every assignment, no matter how unexciting it looked. When he was in France writing guidebooks, he learned every French road, railway, and river. He learned everything he could about the French people themselves, their habits, and customs. Years later, this proved to be very valuable information for him as he planned the tremendous invasion landings on the shores of France. Yes, indeed, that was where the D-Day landings took place in World War II. Again, when he was commanding tank battalions at Fort Meade, Maryland, he learned everything there was to know about tanks, which were still fairly new Army equipment, and even wrote an article about them for the Infantry Magazine. In World War II, as commander of the Allied forces, which used thousands of tanks, this knowledge was invaluable to him. At the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor, Eisenhower was back at San Antonio as chief of staff of the Third Army. He had attracted some attention in the past few years for the good work he had done in the Philippines as assistant to General Douglas MacArthur, the military advisor there, and during his service in the office of the chief of staff at Washington. But December 7, 1941, found him still a temporary brigadier general who was not widely known outside of certain army circles. That Sunday afternoon in December, his wife heard him answer the telephone and dashed downstairs to tell her of the terrible news of the Japanese attack on our Pacific naval base, adding, you better turn on the radio, I'm going down to the office and I don't know when I'll be back. That afternoon changed his life as it did the lives of so many other Americans. It was almost as though he went out of the house as one man and came back as another. General Eisenhower was called to Washington as Assistant Chief of the War Plans Division and did such brilliant work there that he was called to help in the office of the Chief of Staff. 
Chief of Staff General Marshall always recognized real ability when he saw it. He had been looking for a man to take command of the European Theater of Operations. This still young officer from Kansas looked like the man he wanted. First, he tested him in many ways. Ike was studied closely by President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill when the two leaders met in Washington during the early months of the war. They both agreed with Marshall that this temporary two-star general, he had won a promotion during his first weeks in Washington, was the man to lead the Allies in Europe. Ike flew to London early in June 1942, still not knowing what was in store for him. He was simply overseas as one of the staff officers accompanying some Army and Navy chiefs who were preparing a drive against Hitler. He came back to Washington and Marshall asked him to drop a set of plans that he thought would be good for the drive. Eisenhower went to work and soon handed a complete set of plans to General Marshall. The latter looked at them carefully. Then he said, Do these plans suit you? Are you satisfied with them? Yes, sir, replied General Eisenhower, but you may have some suggestions. I'm glad they suit you, said Marshall, because these are the orders that you are going to carry out. Me, said Ike. That characteristic poise of his probably cracked just for a minute under his surprise. You are now in command of the European theater, said Marshall. Eisenhower told a friend of his later, I thought he was joking. From then on, Dwight Eisenhower of Abilene, Kansas, belonged to the world that needed him. His great accomplishments are history. The splendid job he did in bringing together the British and American troops to work as a unit, his magnificent direction of the invasions of North Africa and Sicily, and finally as supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Forces when he planned and directed the great invasion of Europe, the attack that cracked the Nazi wall around the continent. And his supreme moment came in his headquarters, a schoolhouse in Reims, France, where he accepted the unconditional surrender of the Nazis to the Allies. Since the end of World War II, he has served as Chief of Staff, President of Columbia University, and in 1950 was appointed Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, in charge of organizing defense against aggression. A leader, a hero to millions of people, and one of the men who saved the Allied world from destruction. Nevertheless, he is still the same unassuming, friendly, warm-hearted, hard-working man. He himself admitted that there was still something of the small boy in him. This was in a speech he made at Abilene when he returned there after the war was over in Europe. To the cheering crowd, he said, No man has left out of himself all of the boy. I want to speak first of the dreams of a barefoot boy. Always in his dreams is that day when he finally comes home to a welcome from his hometown. And that is the end of the chapter on Eisenhower. What this doesn't tell you, fellers and gals, is that he was elected president of the United States, I believe in 1952, which is the year I was born. Because if I'm not mistaken, he served two terms, and that would have been over in 1960 when President Kennedy got elected. So here you have a guy who grew up in the same state that I did, good old flat windy Kansas, and became president the year I was born. Well, at least he was voted in. He didn't become president till January of 53, I guess it would be. Anyway, it's quite a story. 
I've been told that he came very, very near to dying when he was a boy and that leg was infected. But if he had made the decision to let him take it off, he would not have been the general that he was. He never would have been allowed in the army. And so maybe that was one of God's ways of helping the Allies to win World War II and putting the aggressive Japanese and Nazis right out of the tyranny business. Anyway, got to hang up for today, fellers, and it's been good to be with you as always. I love reading these great books to you. If you're not a member of the club, I hope you'll join at UncleRickAudios.com. Ask your parents about it, but remember, don't nag, because why? Because, as Uncle Rick always tells you, always put God first in your life, be a patriotic American, and honor your father and your mother. So long, little buddies. God bless. Parents, if your kids enjoyed their visit with Uncle Rick, know that they will love the Uncle Rick Audiobook Club. The Uncle Rick Audiobook Club allows access to dozens more stories, both from history and the Bible, to help your kids learn about godly character. Here's what one parent had to say about the book club. My children love the stories. They make history so interesting. My son says it is because of the details that most textbooks don't include. Uncle Rick is easy to listen to. We love his accents and explanations. Thank you so much for that testimony. If you'd like to learn more about the Uncle Rick Book Club, please join us over at UncleRickAudios.com. That is UncleRickAudios.com. See you there.